In the early days of beekeeping, I bought a Troy-built rototiller and had a rototilling business in the spring and fall. And I always felt that it was a privilege in many ways to work the earth in other people's gardens. And I still have places that I pass by now that had exceptional soil. And the home has changed hands. And I don't think the people who live there have any conception of the quality of the soil that they own. Hello and welcome to Notes from the Bee Yard. You're listening to episode 26, Moomlust. On sunny days in February, weeks before the first dandelions bloom, it's not unusual to find honeybees along Colorado's front range scrounging around for tree pollen. They'll pick up pollen lookalikes, like cornmeal dust from chicken feed, coffee grounds from the compost pile. When the sun stays longer and the earth warms, anything small and granular will do. It's like they have spring fever. My name is Laura Tyler. I'm your producer and host. This is episode 26, Loam Lust, written by Tom Theobald in 1991 and read by Tom in 2021. After three weeks of letting warm days pass unused, I was finally able to get out to some of the bee yards on the 21st of February. I would have been out long ago. But the ground was wet, and I didn't want to tear up the roads into the bee yards, or worse yet, get stuck. The bees were flying actively in the warm sun, and they seemed to share my feeling about the day. The end of winter is still a long way off for them, but, to my surprise, some of the colonies were bringing in a fair amount of off-white pollen. The land is still brown the vegetation flattened from the winter snow. There isn't a hint of green to be found anywhere, and yet the bees were finding pollen. It could be weed pollen that has hung on tenaciously through the winter snow and wind. Perhaps it's from the Chinese elms. In another two weeks, bright yellow pollen from the maples will begin to show up. I don't do much on these early rounds. I'm mainly checking for light colonies, those running short on winter stores. These I'll feed, the rest I leave alone, and it will be early March before I start going through all the bees. The early rounds get me back out in the field, get the blood pumping again. They also stimulate a reaction in me which I'm sure many farmers suffer from as well. I have this strange urge to grab a shovel, to turn some soil out in the garden, to smell the sweet, dank aroma of rich new earth that has been worked by the frost all winter. I want to dip deeply for a handful, squeeze it gently in my fist, then let it crumble through my fingers. I think of dirt under my fingernails, ground into the small cracks in my fingers, on the knees of my pants, on the soles of my boots. As I travel between bee yards, 
I look for spring plowing, where long rows of newly turned earth stretch away from the road, their share sides glistening in the sun. Since I don't have land to farm, I can't go out and warm up the tractor. My therapy for the spring affliction I call loam lust comes from the garden. Big, but certainly no farm. It isn't really gardening, actually, that I do out there, although that is how it looks to everyone else. What really draws me to the garden is growing dirt. I want soil so rich and friable that I can dip my hand in up to the elbow. Soil that crumbles at the touch, that looks like Copenhagen but smells much better. Well, I can dream anyway. The chickens suffer from their own form of loam lust after a confining winter with only dry mash to eat. I'm sure they dream of bugs and worms and soft earth to scratch in, and I put these yearnings to good use in the garden. Bobby and TJ dump the clippings from the broad expanse of bluegrass next door over the garden fence. I use it in the summer for mulch. Some gets composted, and some is tilled into the soil but by fall I usually have a large pile yet to be disposed of. This pile is an ugly creature, matted layers near the bottom, and lower still a slimy mass. I spread it out as best I can across the garden and hope the winter weather will help to break it down, but come spring it looks unchanged. It looks like a four-inch layer of carpet remnants, so I put my flock to work. A can of scratch in the morning, another in the evening, thrown around the garden, and the chickens will spend all day scratching, digging, and shredding. They move and scratch and pile the clippings, then rework the piles again. In three weeks, the clumps are gone. The layers are broken up, the chickens are happy, I'm happy, the garden's happy. Almost. The chickens love this routine. Too much, actually. As planting time approaches, the last thing I want in the garden is a bunch of workaholic chickens scratching things out of the ground as fast as I put them in. So, once trained to the garden, the chickens must be untrained. Aracanas are great flyers, and once they've learned, it's hard to keep them on the ground. I remember a late fall evening at Dennis's several years ago. As we talked under one of the tall cottonwoods, Dennis looked up into the tree and said, I've got to figure out a way to get those chickens to start coming down at night. Distributed through the limbs high above his head were about 15 of his aracanas, looking like a flock of wild turkeys. When it starts getting really cold, they freeze and come falling out of the tree like bowling balls, he said. I could see the headline, Local Farmer Killed by Falling Chicken. I don't have quite the dilemma Dennis had. 
I don't have to worry about being beaned by a falling chicken, but I do have to keep them from soaring over the garden fence. First, I till a liberal amount of scratch into the chicken yard. It's an old parental trick. Give the crying child something to divert its attention. This gives the chickens something to work on. Next, we clip one wing on each chicken. This grounds about three-quarters of them, but some still get airborne, careening over the fence with much effort, like drunken barnstormers. A second wing is clipped on these, and this usually eliminates all but the most aerobatic in the flock. The remedy for the last few hard cases is a brick tied to one leg. Just kidding, animal lovers. Eventually we do come to terms. The chickens accept the fact that the garden is forbidden ground, and I can let them out of the chicken yard again. And we both have those early attacks of loam lust behind us for another season. Do you have a favorite part of this piece that you just read? Local farmer killed by a falling chicken. (laughs) (laughs) There are some other lines in here that really stand out for me. Okay, so this line here... Rich new earth that has been worked by the frost all winter. I really love this idea of the frost. It's almost like it's a character in the story. Well, in many ways, in in the life of farmers and gardeners, serious gardeners, it is a character. It is an element in our lives. If you were to describe the frost as a character, how would you describe that person or that being? Well, it's it's an element that's out there quietly working over my garden. And were I a farmer over my farm, unknown to most people, but loosening the soil, forcing the soil to separate, Anyone who's a gardener understands that after the frost has gone out of the ground, it's the perfect time to take a garden spade and turn the garden. It's been fractured and separated, and it's turnable. Here in Colorado, where we have a lot of clay in the soil, you can even turn that clay soil if you pick the right time. If you wait until it's warmed, until some of the moisture has gone out of it, even that clay soil can be turned and worked. If you wait too long or you're too anxious and you turn that clay soil, you're going to wind up with lumps that you're going to have for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then another part of this that I think is really beautiful, it's where you're talking about the dirt under the fingernails, in the small cracks of my fingers, on the knees mm-hmm. of my pants, the soles of my boots. It sounds yes. like you're, you're really thinking about this. I've said many times, and probably will say many times in these columns, that what I love is dirt. I love growing dirt. The, the vegetables are really just 
an added benefit. And I think I may have mentioned it before, but I grew up a good part of the time in southern Wisconsin, where the soil is an inky black. It's soil that has been worked over by the glaciers and then by tall grass prairie for 10,000 years, and it's beautiful soil. Anytime I've gone back home, I've wanted to come back with a pickup load of dirt. (laughs) So what I've tried to do over the years, I've tried to duplicate the effect of 10,000 years of tall grass prairie on the on the earth i've i've gotten close but not close enough it's still a goal when you were writing these columns it sounds like you have different audiences in mind do you want to tell us a little bit about who you were thinking of when you were writing this i had a wide range of readers I had farmers and ranchers who would keep the fence post on the dashboard of their pickup truck. I had suburbanites who would like to have been doing much of what I was talking about. So I was speaking to a wide range of people mm-hmm. and tried to rope them all into what I was writing, capture their interests as best I could. There have been a few times when we've attended hearings about pesticides and so on at Boulder County. There is a strong feeling that I've experienced of division between the different groups, the different communities of people that you've described that you may have been writing for all of them. Do you feel that, and do you feel like it's something that's changed? Yeah. Very, very definitely, and it still exists. And here in Boulder County, the biggest division is over Roundup, Mm -hmm. glyphosate being used on agricultural land that the citizens own. The, uh, The farmers are reluctant to give it up. They're... Interest is fomented by the chemical companies. These are billion-dollar products. And the county has shown very little courage in dealing with it. And as every day goes by, we become more and more concerned about the human impact of glyphosate. Mm -hmm. It remains a controversy that's yet to be resolved. I sympathize with the farmers because many of them are my friends, but they've got to give this up. They've got to quit doing some of the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So this division, is this something that has always felt this way, or is it something that's changed over time? I think it's always been this way, yeah. So it sounds like when you were writing this column, you were wanting to invite a range of perspectives to feel welcomed. Would that be correct? Yes, and I didn't want to turn the farmers away. I wanted them to know that I understood the complexity of the problem. Mm-hmm. I wasn't one of those rabid suburbanites who wanted to deprive them of their farming techniques. I didn't want to lose them. I wanted them to keep reading.
Thank you for listening to Notes from the Bee Yard. We publish new episodes on Fridays at noon. Join us next week for episode 27. In the meantime, hop on over to notesfromthebeeyard.buzz and subscribe.